Hear the word of God, 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 to 12. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil, For laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, we preach to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. The grass withers and flowers fade, but the word of our Lord endures forever. May he. Well, last week as we looked at the concluding verses of 1 Thessalonians 1, we talked about and, and understood how reputations are formed and how in particular for this very young church in Thessalonica, they had gained a reputation for serving the living and true God, and how that is to be our desire as a congregation of the Lord. They were in the imitation of the Lord, learning to endure tribulation in the joy of the Spirit, not getting frustrated or getting bitter by the hard things that were happening but rather the joy of the Spirit laid hold of them as they were following Christ. They exampled grace by turning away from their idolatrous past. How the church today needs to understand that truth, that we are not here to affirm sin. We are not here to tell people that they are free to carry on in the idolatry of the world around us. No, that is a false ministry. We are teaching people to turn from idolatry to the Lord. And and as well, how they waited in hope for Christ's return. Uh, 2,000 years later, we continue to wait in hope For the Lord's return. Just as Israel of old. From the garden. From Abraham's time. From the time of Israel. And under Moses. And under Joshua. And under all those kings. 
They waited thousands of years for the promised hope of the Messiah to come. We are waiting too. And those are things that are real. Real aspects of faith, love, and hope. And for this church in Thessalonica, their faith in Christ was sincere. Their love for God was passionate. Their hope of glory was persevering. And it's something, again, for us to think of as a church, what defines us as a church. But having laid out all of those praises, if you will, all those noteworthy things that make for a church, Paul now comes in chapter 2, and he'll take us down a little bit, even into chapter 3 with this, to now say, well, what about the minister? What about ministry that is coming to meet them as a church? What kind of ministry should you be receiving from those who come in the name of Christ? And even at this particular juncture, remember, this is one of the early letters of the New Testament. About a generation after Christ's resurrection, these letters are starting to come forth within 20 years. There's already a multitude of false teachers going around and turning the gospel on its heels and and helping people gain wealth and a following, and all of those troubles with false teaching are beginning to meet them. And Paul here is speaking to a church that, in its youthfulness, he doesn't want them to get sidetracked or to lose sight of what it means to be a congregation of the Lord. And when ministers come along, how are you to judge them? How are you to understand their ministry. How are you to guard that you're not falling prey to false ministry? I think in some ways we can understand the attractiveness of a false ministry. Jesus, the great shepherd, the great minister of God's people, experienced that lack of desire for genuine gospel ministry from the various people that came to him. Did you know that the majority of people wanted Jesus to simply meet their physical needs? Make my life a little more comfortable. And and Jesus had to confront them with this. In, In John 6, he says there, as he is talking about how he is the bread of life that has come down from heaven to give eternal life to all who would believe. He looks at all of those who are following and he says to them very pointedly, very blatantly, you know, the only reason you're here, you seek me because you ate the loaves and you were filled. And the vast majority of you just want your bellies full. You do not want the food that endures to eternal life. And that's a reality. How does genuine gospel ministry meet such people? Others really loved the spectator spot. They came to see what Jesus would do. But when he challenged them, when he stressed the need of faith, that need of commitment, that need of taking up the cross and and following after him, that, that responsibility of discipleship and what it means to follow Christ in a sacrificing way. Read in John 6, 
that many turned away and stopped following him? Did that mean that Jesus' ministry had error in it? Did it mean that he had some sort of falsehood that wasn't actually reaching the people and addressing their felt needs or accommodating them in their wishes? No, he challenged them with genuine gospel ministry. And the reality is that when we exercise general, genuine gospel ministry, there, there's going to be issues with people who don't want it or who think they're Christians but have no desire to follow in the way that it's being presented. He even had others who wanted just social and spiritual affirmation from Christ. When he challenged them with the sincerity, uh, or should I say the insincerity of their own self-righteousness, think of that rich young ruler who came to Christ wanting and desiring eternal life. But he came to Christ wanting his own righteousness to be affirmed. Can't you just accept me for all the good that I have done? And Jesus had to tear down that idol of the heart. And this young man turned away because that kind of gospel ministry was just too costly. We're confronted with that. But did Jesus change his ministry? Did he change the gospel? Did he change the way in which he engaged and interacted with people so that he could have more of a following? So that he could have more of a, a, a likable nature before the world? No. He understood what he was dealing with. He was dealing with fallen people. He was dealing with people whose hearts were were sinful. People whose nature was in opposition to God and understood what they needed was the gospel, whether they realized it or not. What they needed was to be challenged about who they were in the face of God. And he kept up with it. I put that all before you because did you see how many times in verses 1 to 12... Paul spoke about the gospel of God. We spoke to you. uh, Verse 2, the gospel of God. Verse 4, we've been entrusted with the gospel. And and on and on. Four times he speaks. The gospel of God is what you needed. And he's talking to a church that that, uh, already had the gospel of God coming to it. He's stressing to them. The necessity of genuine gospel ministry that is to continue on in their midst. And what Paul uh, sets before us here in these verses, and based on his calling and his experience, he sets before the church in Thessalonica and us today three qualities that mark genuine gospel ministry. And that is pertaining to the man who would come in the name of the Lord and bring forth this gospel ministry. And and one of the first things you see in verses 1 to 4 is that it was a, a courageous ministry. Why do we begin there? Why does Paul begin talking about ministry 
that needs to be courageous in verses 1 to 4. Because the world hates the gospel. And the world, when they are confronted with it, will hate the messenger. And will hate the people who belong to it. It's going to be the most natural inclination of the world around us to despise and to hate that which God gives through His Son to bring forth salvation. It challenges the ego of the heart. It's not popular. It challenges the soul to transformative change that needs to happen, which they can't do in and of themselves, but which needs to be done by the Spirit on their hearts. They need to be changed into an image that is acceptable to God. A glory from which we have fallen. And Christ is that image. That glory. You need to have courage to bring the gospel of God, as he says at the end of verse 2, in much conflict. It's not going to be something that is readily received. Paul did not come with any hidden agenda to be popular, to be wealthy, or to fill his belly as he noted many other false teachers did. You will hear people say, when it comes to bearing just that simple witness of the gospel to people, you hear it all the time when people will say, it doesn't work. And I've heard that even from Christians who would go out and try to witness to their neighbors and after a few times come back and say, it's not working. Well, you don't know if it is or isn't, but is it the gospel? It's not a question of, is our preaching and witnessing working? Is this genuinely the gospel? And if it is, just understand that many people will not like it and will not receive it because of the nature of the heart, which is why you need to not just be witnessing, but you need to be what? Pray. Because who is it alone who is able to turn that heart to hear? As I said with the children, as my dear wife likes to say, give them those earballs that they need to see and hear the gospel. Can we do that? No. It takes courage to continue to minister. Paul kept going on in ministry in spite of the suffering and ill treatment he received at Philippi. Even in Thessalonica, he says here, he didn't throw his hands up and surrender and say, if this is all I'm going to get when I witness the gospel, then I give up. (laughs) No, he didn't. We were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. Bold to speak. He wasn't going to look for trouble. He wasn't trying to be a martyr. He was accepting that the gospel is something that will bring conflict. It's very nature of confronting Sinful hearts. But what made him courageous for this ministry? What makes genuine gospel ministry courageous? 
You see it in verse 4. It's approved by God. It's not about trying to please men, but to take that which is approved by God and bringing it forth. His desire wasn't, wasn't about making people feel good about their condition as imperfect, unrighteous sinners. Have you noticed in our time and within the last 15 years how much within the church the, the idea of telling people that God accepts them for who they are because if you uh, think you were born homosexual or gay, that's alright, God made you that way and so He accepts you that way. Is that the gospel? Not at all. That, that's changing the gospel to accommodate sin. That's not pointing people to Jesus to have the soul restored and justified before God and to have that nature of sin and the bondage to it broken. It's telling them, it's okay. Just be who you are. You've got nothing to worry about. That's the lie of the devil. The gospel that comes challenges people with their sinfulness and it challenges them with what sin has done to us and our understanding of who we are as men and women before God, created in His image. Sin comes to destroy the image of God, destroy the glory of God. The gospel of Jesus Christ the work that he has done on the cross, that glory of him risen and ascended, that full work of Jesus Christ in the gospel is purposed to end the tyranny of sin in life, to bring forth new life, the image of God in us. That gospel it gives us courage to speak because that's what's been approved by God. And it's also been entrusted to us by God. I find this so amazing that God would give us the gospel knowing what people in the church will do with it to change it, to compromise it, to make it so that it's pleasing and acceptable to a sinner. He still entrusted it to us, to speak it, to speak it plainly and clearly, to call people to faith and repentance in Christ. Yes, God is love, but the gospel is not God loves you just the way you are. The gospel is that God in Christ has come down to earth, that God the Son has come and taken a body of death to himself in order to redeem you from sin and death through his death and resurrection. Yes, God loves the ungodly. God loves the enemy. God loves those who are under his wrath. He loves sinners. But with a purpose, Purpose to change them, to deal with that sin nature, to deal with that judgment of death, to 
transform them into the glorious image of our Lord and Savior. And he's entrusted it to us. And the reality is that when we come and meet the world with that gospel, we're going to find conflict. But the courage comes and meets us in that, Paul says here, when that conflict comes, it's coming to test you. It's coming to try you in your faith so that you will see what work God will do in the people who will hear. The conflict that he experienced, Paul saw it as a testing by God to see if he would be true to the gospel in his own heart. Are you? Are you true to the gospel? Anything, this kind of courage is what is lacking today in the church. It's not simply dealing with a government that wants to impose laws upon us. It's meeting that everyday person and not being afraid to speak to them the truth that they need to hear. And if they get angry with us, stand that test. In many ways, appreciate it. They got the message. <laughs> Do you mean that I am not fit for heaven the way I am? No, you're not. Not at all. Do you mean that if I was to die today that God wouldn't let me in heaven? Probably not. If you have not faith, saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will not see the gates of heaven. Recall even within family. How I lost conversation with family members for months. It stirs up the passions of a sinful heart against God. But praise God for that. It means that they understand there is a distance between them and God that they cannot bridge. And they need the Lord. And the soul is wrestling with that. Genuine gospel ministry is a courageous ministry. It is also, secondly, and this isn't a contradiction, this comes along with it. Don't separate these points, they belong together. Not only is it a courageous ministry, it's a gentle ministry. In verses 5 to 9. You know, if you come to people using the gospel like a hammer, you will only break bones, not souls. I always think, you see in verses 5 to 9, you know, Paul says how we came. We didn't come with flattery, with a cloak of covetousness or whatever. We didn't see glory from men. Look at verse 7, but we were gentle. Gentle, even in that courageous spirit of gentleness exhibited. Some of you know one of my favorite verses of that hymn of, uh, that speaks uh, of Christ, and I just lost the title of it in my head. Let me, let me find it here. I know the number. 168 in our hymn book. I greet thee who my sure redeemer art. Listen to how it expresses Christ in verse 4. 
Thou hast the true and perfect gentleness. No harshness hast thou, and no bitterness. Make us to taste that sweet grace found in thee. Never stay in thy sweet unity. You hear what he's saying? That's how Christ was with everyone. Gentle. Not harsh, not bitter. We struggle with that gentleness. You go to Luke 9, and when the disciples were coming to a Samaritan city to bring that witness of Christ, and they weren't welcomed because the Samaritans saw that they were on their way to Jerusalem. And we know it's like the Hatfield and McCoys that these two groups of people just did not like each other. They hated each other. And when that Samaritan township wouldn't receive the disciples, what did the disciples want to do? Let's burn it to the ground. (laughs) Do you want us, Lord, to call down fire like Elijah did? As if that's an appropriate response of gospel ministry. And Jesus looked at his own disciples and said, what did he say? He says, you do not know what manner of spirit you have in you. But he didn't stop there. He didn't even, in that challenge to his disciples, he didn't leave them there with that rebuke. But he said, this is who I am. This is what I have come to do. The Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives. He came to save them. What makes us think that we as his church, in this dispensation of time, are to have any other agenda? towards the people of this world to help the saving mercies of God meet them. We're not here to destroy lives. We're here to be vessels of gentleness. So how do you how do you do that? Gentleness. Well that very word gentleness in verse seven, it doesn't mean that you're striving for a fight doesn't mean that you're combative, harsh, or confrontational. Gentleness, it, it's, it's communicated to us in that verse. What kind of gentleness are we to have? We're to have that kind of gentleness that mimics that tender warmth of a mother who has a colicky, screaming, nursing infant and needs to be tended to. I use those extra words that aren't there because we know when she's talking about when he's talking about a nursing mother cherishing her own children. How many of you have had a colicky baby? (laughs) How hard those nights have been. But you get up in the morning and you've got that infant there and you're holding that infant in your hands and you look at it and want to throw it away? (laughs) No. There's a tenderness and a warmth, a desire to help it. What is making... Baby, cry. How can I help him? That's the example that is set before us. Gentleness, a gentle ministry, has this kind of striving with people. Not harsh, combative fighting. In fact, we're told, and Paul would say that a little further on to Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, 
He, he would say, especially as men of the gospel, ministers of the gospel, avoid foolish and ignorant disputes that generate strife. The servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. That God might grant to them repentance, that they may know the truth, that they may come to their senses, that they may escape the snare of the devil. That's what we're dealing with. And a sincerity of care, gentle ministry, has a sincerity of care. Verse 8, he says there, affectionately longing for you, so that we can impart to you not only the gospel of God, but our own lives. You become so dear to us. I said before, I don't know if I've said it publicly in a message, but have you ever noticed how people are just generally angry? They're angry about waiting three minutes in a line. They're angry about a person who cuts them off and they'll chase them down and be late for work so that they can get out and berate them. Angry, 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 angry. Now we might look and say, well, that's because of this, 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 and have a long list of wives generally out there. Do you know what? That's a symptom of sin reigning called to a gentle ministry that has a sincerity of care to such people. That phrase, affectionately longing for you, it's the only time it's used in Scripture here. That It's a unique word of Paul that's describing the loving care for the souls of these people because they're precious to Jesus. You might think, well, that's, that's something to be said for within the church. Well, that's where it begins, my friends. You think about everyone that surrounds you right now and just think of that one person that you might struggle with. How can I be affectionately longing for them? When we start to turn our attitudes for one another, it becomes noticed in the world. Because what did Jesus say? You've heard it many times. The world will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. That gentleness begins with us. And it's self-sacrificing. Gentle sincerity of care that is self-sacrificing. Verse 9. The words that he uses there are again fairly unique. That word labor. It's not talking about going out and doing some work. It's a word that expresses exhausting work. You go out and, and you work hard to get something done. And you come in. And, and somebody says, do you want dinner? No, I just want to lay down. Rest. I'm exhausted. That's, that's the intensity of that word. And toil right beside it. Painful, distressing work. That's what it means. This really hurts. And what he's saying here, that there's a gentleness where, where you are so entering people's lives, you're sacrificing that time, that energy, that night and day gentleness to them. And it's not easy. I have it here that I, I wanted to in, in my own right, if I may be so personal, to, to repent of those times where I've often said I'm so busy that I get phone calls or emails now that people are saying, Pastor, I know you're busy. Uh, could you 
and, and, and I hadn't realized till I was preparing this that, that I, I don't want even you people to think you're ever intruding into my day with your needs. And that happens even for us in ministry. We're so wrapped up in doing things. You are very important. There is nothing. I want you to understand this. There is nothing within your lives that you are to ever think you're intruding into my time. Because that ministry has been committed to to me. It's that kind of self-sacrificing labor and toil that is given over in gentleness to those who are in need. Our time is moving on here, and so perhaps I'll save that third one for next week. Just close with this, this understanding that the ministry of the pastor is a ministry that is to reflect within the life of the church. There are examples you are called to follow. And my friends, in all of our ministry, one of the big things we don't want to miss when we are dealing with people, when we need that courage and that gentleness to serve in the name of the Lord, is that we don't want to ever forget that the greatest thing that anyone needs is not that gift card for food or gas. It's not that ear to hear their troubles. What they need is Christ. (laughs) And we can get caught up in ministry to the degree that the gospel is left behind. And I want to bring that to your forefront even now that Paul said we, in verse 8, our greatest desire, we were well pleased to present not only the gospel but our own lives, but the gospels first. My friends, as hard as it may be, you need the gospel in all of your troubles and hardships of life. You need to hear the gospel, even from those of us who would come and say to you, look and trust in the Lord. Maybe there is sin that needs to be repented of and you haven't. It's easy to justify yourself. Or maybe you have slowed down in your devotion and zeal for the Lord and His glory because getting caught up in the issues of life has that effect. You always yourself need to come back and to say, am I in right relationship with my God through the Lord Jesus Christ or have I been grieving the Spirit? Have I been holding on to things that conflict in my relationships with others in the church? Have I been forsaking God for pleasures in the world? You you see, we need the gospel there. But in, in embracing that in our lives, we then become effective in presenting and meeting people in their difficulties with that very same gospel. Because what is it that people need the most? saving grace of Jesus Christ. All of our life, we are to be marked by the gospel, to embrace it in our own hearts. And the gospel is simply this, my friends. If you haven't embraced it, hear it now. The gospel is simply this. You are a sinner under the wrath of God. You're not waiting to be judged. 
you have already been judged as a sinner. And the call of the gospel comes to you that God has provided a way of salvation for you through his son, Jesus Christ, who in his death on the cross has paid the penalty of judgment for your sins and died. He has borne that wrath of God that was against you in his death. He was buried as a sign that the sacrifice for your sin has been offered. He was raised again on that third day as the testimony that God is pleased with this sacrifice and that his Sacrifice is what will pay for all of your sins if you but believe in Jesus Christ. If you believe in him, he will save you. That's the gospel. It's good news. Have you believed? Are you one who has fallen away and who needs to be restored to God? Are you one who is outside of his kingdom and need to come to Christ? Don't Don't waste your time. Don't think you've got a whole week or a whole month or a whole year or another time to do this. Today's the day. Hear the call. Believe on Christ. Let us pray.